So here's, the, here's a quick outline. You'll see it in your bulletin. We're going to look at this psalm kind of in three parts. We're going to look at how it presents the problem to us. There's a presenting problem here, which is probably obvious. Uh, we'll talk about that. There's also an invitation that I want to look at with you. Uh, so the psalmist kind of invites us or reorients us to a new reality. And then I want to also, because I, I just spent five minutes talking about it, how Christ meets us here. There's, a, there's certainly Christ in this psalm, but how, you might be asking, how is Christ in this psalm? So we'll look briefly at that, then we'll come to the Lord's table as response this morning. So first, the presenting problem. You know, the, the psalm begins this with this axiom of faith. Truly God's good to Israel. You see this throughout the Bible. Uh, when I was in Kenya as a young adult, uh, I was a volunteer in mission there. This was one of the refrains in the church there that we would say each Sunday in Kiswahili, Mungu ni muema, which is God is good in Kiswahili. In our response, we're invited to response, Nawaku wote, all the time. God is good, all the time. And many from our community have heard that before, and we've, we've, we've done this before in our gatherings. We're taught to believe this idea that God's good. We, it's a sort of core tenet of our faith, right? And yet it's also true, we're taught to believe this, that life is good. This is that clothing brand at REI. I don't even know if it's a thing anymore. I, I haven't shopped recently, but the guy on the, the, with the canoe paddle and the dog, and he's headed out into the wild, you know, love the wilderness, but and hashtag, you know, live your best life kind of guy. We're told to be living our best lives and not just living them, but showing everyone in the world in our circles of influence that our lives are good, that life is good, right? But here's the deal. Often they're not good, right? And when they're not good, you know, when we get the diagnosis and we're then sick, when, we, when our bank account is empty, we're in debt, our career's on a treadmill, <laughs> And we're exhausted and we're burning out. You know, we keep, we're thinking ahead 20 more years. I don't know if I can do this. Our kids disobey us. Our marriage doesn't meet up to our expectations. Our garden is filled with weeds. Our lawn is littered with dog poop. I'm not narrating my story to you. It's just what it is. The calendar is filled with that proverbial groundhog day of routine. Like, when life isn't good, or at least it's not as good as that other person's life on Instagram, uh, whether that's that person sitting next to you on Instagram or that person you've never met before on Instagram or that person on the magazine cover in the checkout aisle, we tend to face like this poet, Asaph, a situation where we lose our footing in life. Verse 2, as for me, my feet almost stumbled, my steps nearly slipped. We slip. We, we can look the other way, as the message translation of this puts it, and, and easily lose our footing and, and, and come to envy that's the key word here I want to key on, those who are seemingly living the good life, you know, living their best life, or at least a life that's better than our life. Verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant uh, when I saw the pros- their prosperity, the prosperity of the wicked. When I, when I saw that family on Instagram man, that just filled my heart with envy because that's not my life. Now, the statement that Asaph makes here in this verse, verse 3 here about the, his envy of the prosperity of the wicked is actually like the theological hand grenade of this psalm. And, and most of which, the power of this is lost in translation. So the word he uses for prosperity there is the word, the Hebrew word shalom. It's a very powerful and potent word in the Old Testament, but it's never elsewhere used of the wicked. Shalom is kind of the private property of the people of Israel. It's the promise of God's presence and his wholeness. So imagine the reaction his first years would have had to this psalm. The shalom of the wicked? Asaph, are you smoking something? Like, they can't have shalom. Like, that, that's not possible. The idea of shalom in the Old Testament is, 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 
is associated with a powerful, holistic blessing of God for God's people. It's not something that those who don't know God or are far from God or... It's, you've misspoken, Asaph. Like, seriously, this is, an, this is a typo. Yet this is exactly how it appeared to him. Their shalom. In other words, this man, he's being eaten up by envy. He's looking at other people and he's saying their bodies are healthy and I'm sick. They've got wealth, I'm poor. They don't seem to be plagued by anxiety, yet I'm suffering. So do you see it? He's not envying them for their arrogance, as if that's a thing. He's, he's envying them for their prosperity, their wellness, their wholeness. He, he's envying them for what he wishes he had. He's, he, he's envying them for the life he, de- he thinks he deserves as, a God's, as one of God's faithful people. I mean, this is David's worship leader. And he's, he's not experiencing any, you know, like, can you imagine our team up here and then, ugh, I, I kind of can't believe in God because my life doesn't match up to that. That's kind of him right now, which is really the root of envy. Do you know what envy is? Have you thought about this? I mean, one of the seven deadly sins. It's simply wanting somebody else's life. That's what it is. It's, it's to feel that, not just that you, don't, you, that you deserve a good life, but, but that somehow God hasn't been fair to you that God somehow hasn't seen you, he's overlooked you, which is why when you see something or somebody that has a better life than you, rather than just rejoicing in the goodness of their life, you kind of weep internally over the fact that you don't have it. Um, You're obsessed and you focus on the fact that you don't have this, this kind of life. So envy to start with is, is, is wanting the aspects of somebody else's good life. What's more though, it goes beyond that, we don't just want those lives, we begin to resent them. That's really the, the root of envy. Uh, do you hear that in Asaph's, his resentment here? He says, when my soul was embittered. He's got a bitter soul. Like the voice translation puts it like this. My, my heart overflowed with bitterness and cynicism. It felt as if someone is stabbing me in the back as I look at their lives. There's this deep, and that person would be God in this story. There's this deep sense in which Asaph is inviting us to see that, that compa- comparison as they say, is really the, is really the thief or, or enemy of joy and, and that it leads more often than not to deep, deep resentment. And if you want a perfect example or a couple of perfect examples of this in Scripture, I mean, Luke 15, our, our song that we sang here about um, the prodigal son is a really good example of that. There's this elder brother in that story who's just bitter toward his brother, toward his father, because they've, they've reconciled and that son's now a son again. He's just mad there's this, also this story of David and Saul in 1 Samuel 18. I mean, this is a classic example of envy. Um, you know this story of David's this young shepherd boy. He defeats Goliath, who's Israel, or the champion of the Philistines, and David's just a shepherd boy, kind of the runt of, of Jesse's family. And, and Saul can't accept the fact that David's rising in influence and power. He'll become king. He doesn't want that because he thinks he should have been the guy who killed Goliath. He feels deeply threatened by David. And so in verse Samuel 18, uh, the Israelite army is returning home from these series of victories against the Philistines and defeating Goliath. And the women of Israel come out of all the cities singing and dancing and meeting this army as they're returning victoriously. And here's their song. Maybe you know this. Saul has struck down thousands and David 10,000. And remember how Saul responds? We're told that his, here's this celebratory refrain and he's very angry. This saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David 10,000 and only 1,000 to me. What more could he have but the kingdom? He's just filled with 
the toxic power of envy. I mean, it, we're told after that that Saul begins to eye David every day from that day forward, that a harmful spirit enters, rushes upon him, and that he raved around his house with a spear in his hand from that day forward. And you may not have a spear in your hand, but I think what Asaph is saying, that the toxic power of envy on our lives can be overwhelming over our hearts. It's insidious. It takes a victory and turns it into defeat. It takes a celebration, turns it into a blow to your pride. You can never appreciate what somebody else has because of envy. You can't appreciate her beauty, his happiness, their success. It just, it poisons your ability to enjoy the life that you have. Because you're, you're always finding fault. You're always critical. You can never just sit down and savor the moment um, and just what's in front of you that day. Uh, it's emotionally destructive. It's spiritually destructive. It's socially destructive. I mean, for example, we live in this culture, I already mentioned kind of this, but it makes us envy the beautiful. You know, it, it's a marketing strategy, really, <laughs> if you think about it. Uh, you know, you're bombarded with pictures of beauty nearly everywhere you turn so that when you look in the mirror, you're being conditioned to not see beauty. And so you need to go get it. You need to go buy it. In which, you know, and that's one of the dangers and pitfalls of social media. I mean, there's very good things about social media, but one of the dangers of it is that you can never be happy with you. Um, Because others' so-called perfection is just really an illusion. It's uh, this glorious vacation, you know, this enviable professional accomplishment, this perfect family, you know, it might be true at a level. Like that might be a real thing, a version of the best life, but it can be profoundly misleading. We, we, we miss that this friend who just got this job or accepted to this college got 12 rejection letters before that. We never put that on Instagram. Uh, we, we might envy this suntan family that just returned from Hawaii, but... Uh, and if you just returned from Hawaii, good for you. I'm sorry if I just threw into the bus. Uh, we never hear about the three hours of fighting and sniping and bickering that preceded that 30 seconds of elation on that picture. Never. We, we see mountaintops. We don't see valleys. We see sunsets and sunrises. We don't see storms. We, we don't see sleepless nights. We don't see postpartum depression. We don't see miscarriages that led to that miraculous moment. Uh, if, we, if we knew others' whole truths, we might not feel so inadequate, Right? Because, and that's, by the way, it's not just social media and mainstream America. It, it's the corporate world, it's academia, it's politics. I mean, what do you think is really behind the venom in our politics right now, in our political discourse? Do you think it's that people just have different views? Do you remember Vincent Foster? You probably don't know who he is. Uh, he was a member of the Clinton administration uh, who, when Clinton was being impeached, committed suicide. And he wrote this sort of suicide note in the form of a resignation letter that was found shredded into 28 pieces in his, uh, in his briefcase, this chilling note that says this, that, that I'm not meant for the spotlight of public life in a city where ruining people is considered sport. He's talking about his experience of envy. It means power, position, public attention, influence. When, where somebody, whenever somebody gets to the top, we have to bring him or her down. Envy is destroying our political culture. It's destroying our Government is destroying our, our discourse. It's destroying our ability to get things done. Um, it's, destroying our, it's destroying our culture, corporate culture. It's destroying us physically, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. I mean, and I know this is a bit overwhelming and a bit of an overgeneralization, but I just have to say it. A lot of our personal problems right now that we're facing, uh, 
is because we're unwilling. We're so twisted by envy in our lives. We, we want that life, his life, her life. I want your life. I don't like my life. I hate the life I have at a level. I may not say that, but I'm feeling that. Just to take this one more step before moving on, Jonathan Edwards, um, the great kind of Puritan preacher, in one of his sermons, he famously said about envy, never underestimate the spiritual power of envy. He says that Adam and Eve, do you know what happened to them? They had the garden. They had perfection. They had a paradise, eternal life, no disease, no hunger, constant beauty, union with God. Oh, but one thing they lacked, that tree. Everything else is perfect, and yet it wasn't good enough. Every, envy turned the goodness and beauty of the garden to the never good enough myth of scarcity that we're living in today. It's never going to be good enough. Never underestimate the power of envy in your life. Don't think it's somebody else's problem. Begin to look at your heart. So that's the presenting problem. Happy Sunday to you. <laughs> the problem of envy and how it can shape our lives. And thankfully, Asaph doesn't leave us there. I mean, he takes us there, and that psalm, I didn't read all of it, is pretty dark. But the Bible never leaves us there. That would be just an awful place to end this sermon. So I'm not going to do that. There's good news. Verse 17, actually beginning in verse 16, where Asaph says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed like a wearisome task to me until. I love that, until. A powerful little word, word until. Until this shift, I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. So here we find Asaph you know, finally after all this wrestling and struggling with his envious heart, was kind of able to get on top of it. And he did it by going to the sanctuary of God. Um, he had the sanctuary experience. And so this is Psalm 73's invitation to us to enter. We're in a sanctuary right now. Um, wasn't it, this is actually a fellowship hall, but we made it our sanctuary, sacred space. But what does that mean, really, to have a sanctuary experience? Y'all came into the sanctuary this morning? doesn't necessarily mean you're having a sanctuary experience. What does it mean to enter? Does it mean just to go to church on Sunday? Is that going to solve your envy? Is that the silver bullet of envy? I hope not, because I still struggle. I'm here every Sunday, or nearly, and I still struggle deeply with comparison and resentment. I just got to be honest with you. Um, I often feel like I'm on a treadmill in my job, in my life, taking my kids to school every day. I'm like, get tired. And, and so it can't be as simple as attending church, right? Just walking in and it's all good. Um, there's more to it. And uh, so I, what I think Asaph is talking about here is something he probably heard in conversation with David. Remember, Asaph is, is thought to be David's worship leader. David's this king. And over in Psalm 63, David says this about the sanctuary. He says, I've seen you in the sanctuary, God. I beheld your power and your glory because your steadfast love is better than life. Maybe you've heard that verse before. I'm going to praise you as long as I live. My soul will be satisfied with the richest of foods. So that's the sanctuary experience that, that I think these, these men understood. It's not just knowing that God loves you. Come to church, sing the song about God's love, and somehow that's your antidote, right? Um, it's having a sense of God's love on your heart. It's not just singing about God's love and hearing about God's love. It's having a sense. There's all this sensory language in David's psalm there. I went into the sanctuary. I saw your love. That's a sense. I saw your love with my eyes, the eyes of my heart. So he felt it. I tasted it. Do you hear that? <laughs> like the richest of foods. 
on the palate of my soul, I, I experienced, I, I in digested your love. That's what David's talking about. So it's not, you can't just know about God's love as a concept. You have to see it, sense it, and taste it in your soul. It's not just listening to a great song about the love of God. You have to get inside that song. You have to become, I mean, Asaph and David were worship leaders. You have to get inside the music. As worship le- people who play music know that you, it's just like preaching, I guess, or anything, really. I, I can't just tell you words if I haven't really believed in them, and I'm not really living them out. You, have to, you can't just listen to a great tearful story you have to, and just watch it like you might watch a movie on Friday night. You have to get inside that story, see yourself as a character in that story. Um, do you know what it means to get inside the story of God? what that would look like for you and the songs of God and the truths of God. um, To see yourself in the story of the gospel as one of the characters there. Maybe it's a Pharisee. Maybe it's a disciple. Um, Somebody once told me that this, maybe a helpful way of looking at it is that the story of God's like a cube, not a square. So you can picture like a Rubik's cube. Um, If you look at a square, it's just one, it's kind of one dimensional. You know, it's flat and, uh, I can see the whole square from one vantage point, can't I? But a cube, you have to move around it, or better if it's a Rubik's Cube, move it around. Or maybe think of it like this building or a house. If you're looking at a house, and you really want to get a sense of that house, you can't just look at it from the front or the top. What do you have to do? You've got to walk around it, maybe go inside of it and see the inside Unless you see all the sides of that, that house, that cube, you're never really going to understand it and experience it. And that's not just true physically of cubes or emotionally or spiritually. It's true of houses. It's true of envy. It's true of the story of God. And so the psalmist is inviting us here to put ourselves in this sort of experiential location where we begin to see things differently. Did you notice that? When I went into the sanctuary of God, I perceived things differently things began to look different. The psalmist is seeing things from another perspective. His situation and circumstances didn't change. Do you see that? It's just his perspective on those circumstances changed. He began to see it from a different place. So we're being invited by Asaph here to, to engage in a shift in perspective, our, a new outlook to our view of God's work in our lives has to change. We have to come at it from a different vantage point. To see how God's working in our life from a different point of view, or maybe see how God's working in other people's lives. I mean, Asaph had a pretty bad attitude here toward other people, and maybe rightfully so, but maybe he needed to look at them from a different point of view, to see God at work in their life, perhaps. That's what the sanctuary experience is really about. To enter into the sanctuary is to hear from God how God is actually working in the world and in your life, in all the nuance, complexity, darkness and the hard spaces you're in, many of you find yourselves in, it's to come in and say, God, I don't understand this right now, the situation. I cannot understand it. And so I need, I know, I need to know more from you. I need to hear more. This last Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, beginning of Lent, officially. And guess where I went? Wednesday at 9 a.m. I went to Mass, Catholic Mass. Some of you know I grew up Catholic, but um, that's beside the point. My son attends Our Lady of the Lake, uh, school in Wedgwood, and uh, I went to Mass. I just wanted to check it out. And the priest of the parish is Father Tim. He's a wonderful, I love Father Tim. He's so cool. And, uh, and so he told this story of this time when he's in this monastery before becoming a parish priest. 
And while there, he had this sort of crushing spiritual experience filled with all kinds of, kind of crisis of faith. You know, putting it in terms of this psalm, he's kind of facing envy in some ways. He's looking at all these other monks around him and priests, and he's like, man, I'm not cut out for this. You know, I'm not good, I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not cut cut out to be a priest. I don't have it. And he he talks in the, he told in this story how he's filled with all these doubts and fears and how he went to this confessor during that time to just bare his soul. And this confessor listened and then just simply shared two words with him that forever changed his life. He said, hey, Tim, look up. The best spiritual advice he's ever received. Look up. Stop navel-gazing. Look up from your self-doubt, your fears. Just look up and see God at work. Look up from your own securities and inadequacy. Look up and from these other men who are filled with all the same things. Don't look at them. Begin dealing with God, God's mercy, God's love. Look up. I love that because it reveals that spiritual growth is not about going to church on Sunday. This is good. I'm glad you're here. We wouldn't do it otherwise. Um, but there's more to the sanctuary of God. It's bigger than just this hour in this building. It's about looking up, standing back, seeing the big picture, or at least more of it, and getting our eyes off ourselves critically, just for a moment. Uh, Tim Keller, in this, this devotion I mentioned earlier, says it this way. He says that the first step out of the sinkhole of envy is worship. The next step, the antioxidant envy, is humility. And if you know anything about how he defines humility, he says humility is not thinking less of yourself, It's thinking of yourself like a woe is me attitude. It's thinking of yourself less. He says that a humble, a genuinely humble person is not a person who's self-hating or even self-loving, but but a person who's truly self-forgetful. So other-focused, so God-focused that you just allow God to show you what he's up to by looking up, looking out, and just saying, God, where are you? Where are you? What are you doing? Just coming to the story of God, hearing the story of God, and entering the story of God and allowing that story to change you. Admitting, Lord, I have an idea of what my life should look like, and and you've been an idea up until this point, and I'm realizing now I'm never going to deal with all the problems in my life, my doubts, my unbelief, the envy in this world, unless I actually set aside the ideas that I have and begin to relate to you personally. Not, Not just your love in general, but your love in particular, your love personally. That's what it means to enter the sanctuary of God, to be reoriented toward God's goodness, not in general. Verse 1, God is good to Israel, but now God's goodness in particular. For me, verse 28, it is good to be near God. Do you see the shift there? God's good to Israel, that's great. But is God good to you? Think of your life right now. Could you say that about your life? God is good to me. You know? No matter your situation. Could you say that? See, at the end of it all, Psalm 73 is reorienting us toward how deeply personal God's goodness is toward us. And by us, I mean you, me. God is good toward us. And our circumstances are not the point here, uh, which is where we find Christ meeting us in this psalm. Hear these words again from Psalm 73. My soul was embittered when I was pricked in my heart. I was brutish and ignorant toward you, God. I was like a beast. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. Or you might say, you're continually with me. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. You receive me into your glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? 
There's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh, my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know, as I was studying this psalm at the end, at, during the week, um, I was reminded of how this prayer, this moment in this prayer, is much like this time in John's gospel where Jesus has just foretold of his suffering, his death. He's, he said to his disciples that are gathered there, this is the 12 plus, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of God and drink his blood, and he, they don't have concept for communion, by the way. So this is freaky. You have no life in you. And like I said, this freaks many people out. And John just says, this is a hard, too hard of a teaching for them. And many begin to turn away. John 6, 66. It's a, kind of an odd, a little scary verse. Many disciples turn back and no longer follow Jesus. How about that for a Bible verse? It's a real crisis of moment. A crisis moment in the Jesus movement. Will this be the end? Is this the end of it all? And of course it's not, so Jesus asks the 12 if they want to leave too. Do you too want to leave? Is this too hard for you? And do you remember what Peter says? Just like Asaph. Lord, where would I go? I've left everything. I left my dad's business. I left my family to follow you. Where will I go? Whom have I in heaven but you? Who do I have on earth besides you? You have the words of eternal life. You're all I have. Do you see it? How both Peter's desperate cry of faith, ancient Asaph's prayer, how they drive us home to this ultimate reality. The resolution of our, of our heart's deepest longings and desires um, can never be found by mental assent, doctrinal sort of conviction, moral reform, all those things that we try and do with our faith. It's, it's a transformation and healing are rooted in the depth and quality of our relationship to Jesus. Transformation is rooted in our depth, the depth and quality of our relationship to Jesus. What does your relationship to Jesus look like right now? What kind of time are you spending with him? We're being invited by this psalm, if not for the first time, then again, to come to a deep sense of our union with Christ. Where we're going to discover when we, when we spend time with him, we've been given blessing after blessing. We've been given good gift after good gift. We've been given promise after promise. We've been given encouragement after encouragement. We've been given the life and indwelling presence of Christ. Whom have I in heaven but Christ? There's nothing on earth that I need desire besides Christ. My heart, my flesh fail, my hopes go unmet, my career unfulfilling, my marriage disappointing, my body literally failing, my faith is flagging. (laughs) And yet I, I can admit how broken I am before you but because God is my strength and will be my strength forever because God is good to me when I come to him like that with that perspective just looking up eyes wide open uh, and return to him that's when gratitude just fills your life when the toxic power of comparison resentment that has a grip over you just melts away and dissolves. You're free to love and be loved by Christ, to rest and experience his peace. So that's our desire in this season is to come to Christ in the Psalms and experience all he has for us. So to that end, this morning I'll invite our worship leaders back up. Um, we're going to come to the Lord's table this morning um, where this, this love and goodness of God toward us 
is powerfully demonstrated. Um, And we come uh, this morning kind of with this opportunity to look up from our lives for a moment and look out and see Christ and see how in giving his life for us, in being broken, um, we can receive the goodness of God for ourselves personally. We're going to do it a little different this morning. Uh, We're just wanting to be sensitive to kind of what's going on out in the world. So we're not going to, um, we're going to allow you uh, to come to the tables. We'll have two. Um, And the crackers there have been already broken. Silas and I took care of that. And then receive communion on your own this morning. Or you can come with your spouse or family and do that. Um, In other words, we're not going to serve you. Just being careful this morning. Um, And and again, this is a gift for you, so don't, if, the, you know, if you're feeling a little anxious about all that with the, what's going on in the news, um, don't feel like you have to come up this morning, okay? We just want to provide that opportunity to you, an opportunity to look up and look out, okay? Um, having said that, let me just pray for a moment as we prepare for communion. God, we thank you for uh, your goodness toward us, how ASAP echoes that to us, that um, in Christ um, we can be reminded not only of your, of your love in general, but in specific, that uh, you have for each one of us, God, life. And we need to only look up from our lives to see it. And so we pause in these moments, God. We ask you, uh, as we encounter you at the table and in the remainder of worship that we have together this morning, would your spirit um, minister to us um, where we've lost hope, where we're, um, where we're afraid, God, would you meet us? Would you give us vision, God, how to stay t- take steps of faith? Thank you that you're with us, God, and you're for us. Pray in Christ's name.